Trish, how many seasons of A Different World were there? I feel like you're putting me on the spot. I'm going to go with four. That's my guess. All right. And so we have a special guest today, you guys. Ariel, how many seasons of A Different World do you feel like there were? I want to say five. You both are wrong. How many was there? There's six seasons. (laughs) That was my second. It tricked me. I don't even count the first season, though. And nobody really watched the last season. Yeah, so like it doesn't count. There's only there's technically only four. <laughs> Thank you so much, you guys, for tuning into another episode of Shit Black Girls Watch. I'm your host, Mia Danae, alongside my best friend Trish. And today we are talking about HBCUs and we're getting into so many movies and primarily a different world, which is to me the number one black television show that features HBCUs. So we're gonna be talking about that a little bit. One black television show, period. Probably. I'm, I'm willing, I'm willing to argue it. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a very special guest. She is a beauty producer at Condé Nast. She works with the Lore Magazine, also Glamour Magazine. And she has also been a casting director. We are bringing on Ariel Neblet to Shit Black Girls Watch. Welcome. Welcome, Ariel. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we start off every episode with our Black Unicorn. So this episode, we didn't want to just give it to one person. We thought it was important to kind of give it to HBCU first in general. One of the movies that we're talking about today is Tell Them We Are Rising, which is a documentary about Stanley Nelson. You can catch it on PBS's website for free. But through that documentary, I learned a lot of information. And when I was watching it, I was like, who's the first Black HBCU president? Historically, Black College is an HBCU, in case you guys didn't know for any reason. Not to, we don't want to shame anyone, but... We're talking about historically black colleges and universities. And universities. Yeah, very true. Within that documentary, he talks a lot about, you know, how these HBCUs started. And primarily they were started by missionaries, white missionaries, and also by the AME um, churches, which is the African Methodist Episcopal Church. I can't believe you <laughs> you got that acronym. <laughs> that's a that's a wordy acronym. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And then also, so a lot of these started in the in the north, but primarily after the Civil War, many HBCUs were started in the South. And so I wanted to know like who was the first black HBCU president. And actually the first one was AME Bishop called Daniel A. Payne. He actually bought Wilberforce University in 1863. He was one of the founders and he bought it out and he became the first black president of the HBCU in 1863. So then I was like, well, what was like technically the first black HBCU specifically in the South, which was Shaw University, which is in North Carolina. Shaw University in 1865 was the first institution of higher learning for free black men after the civil war. Um, And through that, they actually have a lot of firsts where they were the first college to um, offer a four-year medical program. That's dope. And they were the first historically Black college in the nation to open its door to women. Oh, that's even doper. (laughs) Pretty historic. Those are are some of their firsts. But I think the biggest thing that has come from Shaw University is that Ella Baker, the mother of the civil rights movement, went to Shaw University. Her legacy in general is so historic and so Mm -hmm. groundbreaking. She you know, helped to develop the, what is it, the SCLU with Dr. Martin Luther King. And she helped to really like foster and kind of mentor a lot of student activists throughout that time of the 60s and 70s. And so she, her legacy is really like strong and heavy. And she was from Chow University. That is a little bit of HBCU first history that we wanted to give for our Black Unicorn today. Happy Black History Month, everyone. Right? Happy Black History Month. So yeah, let's get into our Let's Get Real segment where we get into 
all of these black college focused movies and television shows that we're going to be talking about today. I actually have a lot of questions just purely out of interest because mm-hmm. I did predominantly white institution. Like I'm really curious about your experience. I would love to know like just a little bit of background where you went, what years you attended. Yeah, I went to Virginia State University in Petersburg, Virginia. I went from 2008 to 2012. Major was mass communications. And what made you want to go to HBCU? It wasn't even like I intentionally went. So I moved to Virginia from Brooklyn in high school and this was like a local school. I can't even tell you like, (laughs) oh, I have to go to HBCU. Like I don't even think I knew what HBCU was coming from Brooklyn. Oh, okay. But in the South, again, it's 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 more common. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I know like a lot of people from my high school would go to BSU or state, we call it a state, mm-hmm. would go to state. And it was popping, parties was popping. Did you only apply to HBCUs or like how many schools did you actually apply to? I want to say I applied to Virginia State, Norfolk State, which is also HBCU in Virginia Beach, and then BCU. And then like towards the end of the school year, they did another submission, another admissions. And they were like anybody with under a, I think maybe, I maybe had like a 2.0 whatever anybody like a 2.0 we're going to interview you and you can get in that's awesome yeah they interviewed me and they was like yeah you'll do you know you know they had faith in me they was yeah. like we, we'll accept you and that was like literally the best thing that is because awesome. i went to college and i flourished like i graduated college magna cum laude like i loved my major top 10 percent of my class i just had other issues at home why i didn't like high school mm-hmm. and it affected school and see somebody believed in you gave you an opportunity and exactly the only experience I've, and by this, I mean like the only visual representation I've ever mm-hmm. seen of like HBCUs in like growing up was a different world. You know, Bill Cosby show, they were talking about Hillman and stuff like that. So for you, for those of you that don't know, A Different World is one of the greatest television shows of all time, but it's basically mm-hmm. about the lives and times of students at a fictional HBCU Hillman college. Everything I know about what it's like to you know, attend a college with people that look like you, that understand your experience and things like that come from this show. I don't know how you feel about this show, but can you kind of talk about some of your HBCU experiences, what that looks like living on a campus, what that representation looks like, you know, how it may have empowered you, all of that. Well, yeah, I love A Different World. That's okay, perfect. Top, top <laughs> one of my favorite shows. No, for a long time, I felt like I was Whitley Gilbert. Oh, I love Whitley. She's my favorite. That could be hit or miss for some people listening. They might be like, oh, Whitley. Love Whitley. <laughs> so- <laughs> love her so much. But my experience, again, because I grew up in Brooklyn pre-gentrification, it was normal to be around people that looked like me. So it never really felt mm. out of place. Mm-hmm. I feel like I would have been more of a culture shock for me. Because even when I moved to Virginia, the area I lived was majority Black. There were some white people and white students. And I actually didn't even have a white teacher until I moved to Virginia. And that was That's in high school. Crazy. Because I grew up in a very populated, Black populated area. And I went to private schools in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. It was still... That's amazing. I, I wish I had that experience. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it didn't feel out of place to go to a school people look like me. What was out of place though is realizing just because we're Black doesn't mean we're all the same. Yes. Mm, and of course yeah. I know that, especially being a New Yorker, but I didn't have to live with these people, you know? And I definitely yeah. feel like I subdued myself a lot just because I couldn't share like my Caribbean heritage. Like, I had a few friends that would come over and be like, oh, I love your mom's accent. accent. And I'm like, what accent? Oh, <laughs> like, fair. I don't hear it. <laughs> So stuff like that. What was like the climate of attending HBCU? Like what was the campus like? What was, you know, activities being involved? Like, so freshmen had their own thing. Like, you know, we thought we was popping. Like we had, so freshmen had their, um, the campus to themselves for like a week or two first before returning upperclassmen came. Campus was popping. Like we call it the yard. So we don't call it campus. So you out on the yard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so 
we had um, Foster Hall, which was like our dining hall. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a cafeteria, but it was like, um, it had like classes in it. It had uh, Pizza Hut at the time, some other stuff. And people, like when it was warm, around 12, people just be out on the yard chilling. Music, laughing, sitting down. So if you had a 12.30 class, you was pissed because you couldn't be out on the yard kicking it. <laughs> Certain things, like when I talk to people that went to other HBCUs, like Fried Chicken Wednesday, fish Fried Fish Friday. That's common. Oh, like, I, that's I, I hear about this. Fish. Like the food is amazing. <laughs> it was like that. I could imagine the food being great. Mm. No, not great. so much. No, I guess because it is still oh. cafeteria food at the end of the day. I feel like that's where most of a different world takes place is in, you know, that restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. Like they have this like convening place where everybody mm-hmm. gets together. That's where you see everybody. Um, and there's kind of like this community HBCUs that I don't, I'm, I'm not that I don't think I'm, I'm positive. You don't get like a predominantly white institution. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you're talking about like the yard or whether you're talking about, you know, just the clubs and activities that go on, you know, when I think about a different world, it touched on so many like issues as far as like racism, sexual harassment, it had so many different things that compounded into like this TV show. I guess I would be interested in like what it looked like to be active and what it looked like to, you know, participate in like politics or what it looked like to participate in like the world around you coming from the lens of like an HBCU. Like, how did you guys get involved in your communities or, you know, what did that look like for you guys? For Virginia State, I don't know if all HBCUs are like this, but it's very org heavy. So there's mm-hmm. like an org for everything. There was a group called like the Betterment Brothers and Sisters with a lot of mentoring. There was the Greek organizations. There was the band. It was rare for somebody not to be in something. Like I was in a mass comm club. I worked at the radio station, like all a bunch of other stuff. So it's rare not to be in some sort of org. And I feel like also like when you're like, friends are inviting you like they're in organizations and they're inviting you to their events so Mm -hmm. it's like you're always doing something because when I looked at when I watched a different world they were constantly engaging in social political issues Mm -hmm. in the black community like they were dealing with like those racist white boys that like tagged their car for the Mm -hmm. football game they were dealing with um Whitley when she was like getting sexually assaulted in like her workplace Mm -hmm. and stuff like that not to say that you know that was part of their college experience but the way they were like like how being from an HBCU taught them to interact with their environments Mm -hmm. and stuff like that because I think people say um one of the 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 downsides in quotations because I don't really think this is a downside that people say is like oh HBCUs don't prepare you for the real world and you know operating in a white society and stuff like that but it doesn't really seem that way at all and I think first of all we have our whole lives to be around white people I think we can take four years to not (laughs) and you can be around white people for years and still not understand how they operate Mm -hmm. Do you feel like an HBCU gave you a different set of tools to like a different bag of tools? Or do you think it gave you anything as far as like advantageous? Definitely advantageous. Mm-hmm. Definitely, you know, work hard, work, work twice as hard, mm-hmm. that stuff. So you can be above. Um, it also, there was so many connections. Like one thing I loved about HBCU is our classes are so much smaller. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like That's I amazing. ever was in a class that was more than 35, 40 students. Even, even that is a huge class. Mm-hmm. and that's not common so your professors know you and then it got to the point where I was taking the same professors year after year so instead of like my college at the university we had like the same rotating teachers I was thinking about also my experience me going to a PWI the University of North Carolina and like how my classes were a lot bigger like my economics class was at least 200 people that's crazy Jeez. but then going into my like specific like career focused classes my um major classes like my journalism or my mass comm classes then the classes would be you know maybe six people or maybe Mm -hmm. 20 people but then also the aspect of like I'm the only black person in this class Mm. 
I don't know. I just didn't feel comfortable at UNC. Mm -hmm. Like UNC kind of made me feel dumb. Not going to lie. Like I felt stupid at UNC and I didn't feel empowered to speak up. I didn't feel like empowered to give my opinion and thoughts in classes. So can you talk a little bit about like how your HBCU allowed you to like kind of grow into a woman and to a black woman and like feel empowered because you said like instantly when you got there, you were a lot more like free and like mm-hmm, a lot social. more active and social. Mm-hmm. So like, how did your HBCU kind of help mold you and feel empowered? I didn't even notice until I went home and people were like, you're, you're more social. And I'm like, am I? It kind of was like a subconscious thing where I just felt hurt. Like, and also my professors were like, you know, you're spending your money. You're not speaking up in class. You're not doing this, it's hurting you. And then I had professors from Jump being like, you're an amazing writer, you're a great writer. This, you're good at this, you're good at communication. Just, so just having that reinforcement. So actually um, on the list we have for today for mm-hmm. some of our movies, we have School Days, which is you know probably one of the first movies that ever talked about HBCU culture, specifically like fraternities and sororities. Spike Lee produced, wrote, and directed this film in 1988. Mm-hmm. Well, Spike Lee is known for going to uh, Morehouse. He's a Morehouse mm-hmm. man. He puts it in everything. Yeah, and so they actually didn't allow him to film School Days on Morehouse's campus because, you know, they thought that the film was a bit too negative and they didn't want it associated with the school. So uh, so it was actually Spelman, Morehouse, and Clark Atlanta University didn't allow him to film on their campus. I think Damn. he started at, I think he started at Clark Atlanta, but then they said he couldn't film anymore. So he had to finish at Morris Brown College um, to just make sure that the film was done on schedule. Morris Brown College is no longer in existence, unfortunately. And so I kind of wanted to talk about like, how do you see the evolution of HBCUs right now? Because during this time when um, Tell Them We Are Rising came out in 2017, Mm -hmm. like a lot of colleges, HBCUs were not getting enough funding. That's why Mm -hmm. Morris Brown isn't here anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I feel like there's a resurgence where like so many schools are getting funding now, like people like Reed Hastings or Mackenzie Scout or like putting millions of dollars into HBCUs. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys talk about this as like HBCU alumni, if you guys talk about like the resurgence of the HBCU or doesn't even feel like that to you guys Mm -hmm. who are HBCU alumni. Yeah, it doesn't feel like a resurgence, but definitely when I was there, we had a lot of alumni, especially in the mass comm department. A lot of alum came back that worked on big shows, had their own production companies. We would do a trip every year to DC with one alum um, and he would take us around to different broadcast places and just show us around, like keep in contact. So we always had like a network of alum to reach out to when we wanted internships. We had partnerships with a lot of local news stations and radio stations. And so it was like, you're going to get jobs, you're going to do well, and then you're going to come back and you're going to give back because mm. we always had that. But you had to be on your shit too. Mm-hmm. If they tell you to call a certain time and you're not, you know, you're playing, they're like, you're not professionalism. Serious. Yeah. So definitely that, like, it was always like, um, we helping you so you can help the next person. That really kind of like ties in together exactly what Mia was talking about, I guess, about legacy and community Mm -hmm. and how, you know, your community is part of, you know, preserving the legacy. legacy. Yeah, that's really beautiful, actually. It's very full circle. And I guess now that I'm saying it again, I always thought this was a college experience, but maybe that's not the case for people, Black people going to PWI or no. like that. Unfortunately, it, sound, it <laughs> sounds amazing though. Like to, like to think about it now, oh man, I, I don't think I could 
consider sending my kids in anywhere else besides mm -hmm. an HBCU or like at least, you know, talking to them about HBCUs and encouraging them or encouraging young black people today applying for college. Like maybe you should consider an HBCU and go where people look like you and mm -hmm. have the same experiences and you can really form that community. Mm -hmm. When I graduated, y'all, I went to the LSAT and the G GRE. Oh. So I was going to graduate oh. grad school or law school. And I was studying for both at the same time. And I signed That's up rough. for Saturday course. And my professor, who was one of the deans of the mass comm department, like emailed me, was like, stop by my office or such and such a time. I get there. He's not there. But his secretary was like, oh, here's your um, GRE study guide, like a whole Aww. book worth like $150. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't buy this. Like, she's like, no, no, Dr. Conrad said you should have the book. Aww. More signed up. But because it was a Saturday class, mm -hmm. only two of us remained. And he gave both of us books. He was like, y'all committed to coming out on a Saturday for a few hours. Here's a textbook. That's awesome. My white teachers would I'm never. Like, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it depends. Like It does depend. I'm being facetious. When you're thinking about like HBCU representation, do you see or do you can you think of any particular shows or movies that emulated the Black college experience well you could relate to that seemed like exactly what you were experiencing? I really can't think of anything. I also don't feel like there are too many shows. A Different World. A thing about a different world though that I love is we knew they went to HBCU, but they didn't focus so much yes. on it being an HBCU. Same thing, like I feel like we're living single. Like we knew they were black, but they didn't feel the need to always say we're black. You know, that's yeah. a that's like its own little genre that needs to exist. Yeah. It's like black people existing. Because mm -hmm. you're right, a different world, while they did attend a historically black college, like they were just existing and it was like normal. Like they were just mm -hmm. normal everyday life of blacks, like students who happened to be black. It mm -hmm. wasn't like the focus that they were black. Exactly. Even that culture, like the whole mixture of like styles, like nobody dressed the same. We had black people from Alaska that had never been around this many black people before. I really didn't get much sense of like everybody's personalities in school days, except the main characters. Mm -hmm. Like what was the school culture outside of pledging and- So theirs was like the opposite of a different world where you felt like they focused too much on trying to create like the HBCU experience. And maybe that was prominent in the eighties, but now I just, I can't, see like a light-skinned girl growing up to like a dark-skinned girl saying something crazy yeah like, yeah or just women doing that shit in general like we're just not right. on that same time it was like literally elevated like or exaggerated I should say it was definitely exaggerated yeah but I don't know maybe it wasn't exaggerated back then in the 80s maybe it yeah. so I mean yeah. we've I've heard plenty of stories of darker-skinned women being called like African booty scratchers like that's mm -hmm. Like petty ass shit like that, which to oh, me is sure. yeah. yeah, so awful. But yeah, I don't think it's as prevalent now. Hidden, I should say. It's probably it's definitely more hidden. Cause I do still hear I still hear ignorant ass comments um mm -hmm. when I'm just looking through Twitter or an mm -hmm. Instagram about right. colorism and I'm just like, dang, we still talking about this? Like we're still dealing with this. Yeah. Right. Like you still what, hear about people doing shit where it's like, oh, no dark skin chicks. No, like y'all can't wear certain colors or don't do, don't put like certain makeup on because that doesn't fit I your feel skin like tone. Like the men will talk about us. Yeah. Women, I was just, I was trying not to, <laughs> I was trying not to, to gender it, but yeah, you still hear like all these comments about, you know, the preference, like eugenics mm -hmm. type shit. Like, oh, I prefer women like this. So my kids will look like this. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to give mm -hmm. any specificity to it. Cause sometimes it's not all just color. Some people will eugenics you over your hair or your eye color or some mm -hmm. dumb shit, but that's a, that's a bigger issue. I did have a question. Um, since you did like a different world, 
mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think we discussed it a little bit earlier, like it covered so many issues and it wasn't just about, you know, attending an HBCU, but just being black and what that black mm-hmm. experience looked like, especially as a young adult. Is there anything in specific? And I guess this is a question for both of you that a different world taught you. That's a good question. I was gonna say, cause I have, <laughs> if you guys don't, I have. Okay. You know what it taught me, which not something I ever thought about, but the way Whitley and Kim were best friends, but they were so different. Uh, it was beautiful, wasn't it? And even Dwayne and Whitley, like Dwayne was from Brooklyn. He was, according to her, or even compared to her, he was hood. She came from money. Yeah. And like coming to an HBC, I feel like being around so many different Black people brought her down from the weird ass high horse. That yeah, she it humbled on, her. Back mm-hmm. down to earth. And it made it be like, these are your people. And we, even within the, our race, we have classism. And and Whitley was a character. The funny a character. thing, the funny thing about Whitley is she was actually um, not supposed to be a regular on the show. She was only supposed to appear like a couple episodes, but people loved her so much mm-hmm. that they actually made her like one of the main characters. I could see that. And that was a character Jasmine Guy created. Yeah, like, yeah. She, she was like she was inspired by a teacher she yeah. had, a and she like took on her voice. Yeah, and everything like that. So that's really interesting too. A different world actually showed me healthy black relationships a little bit mm-hmm. Dwayne and Whitley are black love to me they're exactly as far as when I think of like healthy relationships establishing healthy boundaries communication they learn from each other so much and I think that's like the foundation of it like of any relationship is being able to to learn from your partner and I think Dwayne and Whitley taught and they even you know they admitted that like you taught me how to love you taught mm-hmm. me so much about myself that scene Oh, you smell like before the wedding. On the, yeah, on the first yeah. you taught me how to love. love. You taught me how to love, and then you know, baby, please. Oh. <laughs> Iconic. I love, I love, I loved Wayne and Whitley's relationship, and even in those later scenes as they grew in like you know marriage and their relationship, um, and even when they had to take a break from each other, like there was so much to learn and watching them grow apart to come back together. Like there was just so much to take in from their relationship that. Even now, sometimes as I'm an, as an adult, when I look back on that, I kind of try to take pieces of that and implement them into my relationships now, like as far as communication and the growth goes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what a different world taught me. <laughs> like just to piggyback off of Trisha's point, Dwayne was also always willing to hear her out. Oh my gosh. And a lot of times, like what we see, unfortunately, is a partner that does not want to listen mm-hmm. or does not want to take anything you're saying. And that's male or female. Like sometimes right. people just don't know how to communicate. And, and it took Willie a little bit to get there. Yes. But then once Dwayne was like, I'm not dealing with your ass no more. I loved his boundaries. Dwayne was such a like securely attached man. He was just mm-hmm. like, look, I love you. And this is a, I want to be here, but I'm not dealing with this shit today. And he would just like put her out sometimes and be like, I love you, but I can't deal with you right now. And just exactly. walk away. And then come back later though. Right. But then even look at their parental units. Like his parents were happily married in mm-hmm. love and she had her dysfunctional parents. It was dysfunctional. So the attachments were like operating off of that. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things I noticed throughout watching the series and what I loved is like, like a different world taught you how to exist and kind of just grow into adulthood. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of the characters were really trying to figure out, especially when they got to like their junior and senior years, like they were really trying to figure out what the hell am I going to be doing for the mm-hmm. rest of my life? Mm-hmm. And the fact that like they allowed all of the characters to evolve, like especially Freddie, who was like such a, mm-hmm. like an activist. Loved her so much. I think that's funny because like she was like headstrong political activist, the mm-hmm. Southern, like the earth girl. And you see the same thing in school days about like, there's these extremes of like who you are in college, because yes. I feel like you're, you cling on to something 
because you feel so connected to it, but you're not allowing yourself to see everything that you could be. And I think mm -hmm. Freddie is like the biggest example of that throughout a different world. And then she evolves into being a lawyer and mm -hmm. figuring out how can I really use like my talents and how can I really figure out my morals? Like what is important to me? How can I make money off of that? And how can I contribute those things mm -hmm. to society? Mm -hmm. And I think she was the best example of that. But even with Dwayne and Whitley and like how they grew in their relationship specifically in their careers and mm -hmm. how they made that shit work. I feel like they just gave such a great example in a different world of like you guys were saying, like these two totally different people mm -hmm. making it work. I just loved that about a different world. There's two characters that resonate with me specifically and that is Kim and Freddie because mm -hmm. I think they're me on opposite ends. Like my work ethic is Kim, mm -hmm. but me as a person, Cree Summer is the first time, that's Freddie, is the first time I've ever seen myself probably like really represented on television. She is exactly like my spirit animal. She's exactly what I see myself as or who I think I am sometimes. And I think Kim, there was this one episode where she was trying to do it all. She was pre-med and she was just burning herself the fuck mm -hmm. out. And I think mm -hmm. that was the first time, you know, I had that lesson and like, oh, the strong black woman and we can't do all that shit. Mm -hmm. And we do just be trying to go and go and go and go until we just burn the hell out. And there's just so many lessons between the two of them that I learned. Do you have a character that resonates, like that you resonate with the most? Yeah, Whitley. I definitely <laughs> have my Whitley day. I, I'm not as much as Whitley as I was a few years ago, but I definitely, um, as my friend once said a few years ago, I have like an air of condensation sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so Whitley, definitely Kim with the work ethic. Mm -hmm. My senior year of college, I had three jobs and an internship and I was Sis, so I sleepy to the point where I was like crying because I was so tired. Like I just wanted to sleep and I couldn't. And even a little bit of Jaleesa. Oh, that's a good one. She felt like she was a late bloomer, which mm -hmm. I, didn't, I never felt like I was a late bloomer, but it took me some time to realize like, okay, this is what I want. These mm -hmm. are my boundaries. Like mm -hmm. I can't have people wasting my time no more. And she ended up being like an entrepreneur and all that. Right. Yeah. Jaleesa is a good example. Yeah, for Fantastic. sure. I think I relate to Whitley in the sense of like the way I want to be loved. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm her in the sense of just like how extra and shit she be. Mm -hmm. She was very condescending in the beginning, but not so much mm -hmm. when she grew up. But I think Freddie and probably Whitley are the two that I relate to the most. I actually do feel like Dwayne had a little glow up too, from the flip glasses to chasing everything. Yeah, he definitely had a glow up. Ron specifically too. But it took Ron a really long time. Ron, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say the opposite. I feel like Ron is the only one that pretty much stayed the same throughout the series. He, he did, but like towards the very end, he finally yeah, got his shit he together. he was growing up. It just took him a really long time. And that's realistic. Yeah. Men are late bloomers for sure. They are. Actually watching School Days, I was like, this is really the cast of a different world. <laughs> I think he was like the dean. The president was a little more subdued, but then it was like a dean that was always going off. He played Ron's dad in A Different World. Oh, oh. I didn't even notice that. Okay, okay. I remember the episode where Ron lied about him but he was about to graduate yeah. yeah that was a big lie that was a big bold one but he always said his dad was a car salesman mm -hmm. so he was good at being sleazy <laughs> and, and Ron I was, was like, good at being sleazy <laughs> he's a sleazeball I feel like he's the one that I feel like I don't feel like I saw much change in him that's fair I feel like he had the least character development for sure mm-hmm Thank you, Ariel, so much for your Thank insight. You for having me. We definitely needed an HBCU alumni to be on mm -hmm. the show and talk to us about these movies because, I mean, we couldn't give that insight. And like just hearing your for insight sure. made me so excited. I wish <laughs> I could go back and go to an HBCU. Yes. 
we'll be ready when homecoming start back again. We'll be out there. So thank you again. We appreciate your insight. And um, if you guys want to know more about Ariel, like I said, she works for Condé Nast, specifically with Allure and Glamour. She's a beauty video producer. So definitely reach out if you have any questions for her. All right, let's get into our last two movies, which are Drumline and Stomp the Yard. These are probably the most recent movies when it comes to HBCU culture, right? They are. I'm lying. Burning Sands. Yeah, did Burning come out, Sands. Did but come out. That was a little too controversial. Yes. We're not going to talk about that. It, I, I ended up going back and watching it when I was watching these other movies. And I was like, mm, I don't know. We should talk about this one. This one that <laughs> goes off the rails. So if you want to watch Burning Sands, it is another movie on HBCUs and, you know, historically black fraternity sororities. But we're not going to talk about those today. We're going to talk to you. <laughs> I guess we can start with Drumline. I love Drumline. Right. A lot of people give Drumline slack, but I think Drumline was a great movie. Drumline was so good, y'all, that I legit was trying to transfer high school <laughs> so that I could go to a high school that had a really good black marching band. I was gonna say, because Mia was in the marching band. I was in the marching band in general. I played the saxophone, but mm -hmm. I was trying to go to E.E. E. Smith where oh, my dad lived right down the street from E.E. E. Smith. And they have an amazing Black marching band, mm -hmm. but they don't have a great school, yeah, school. academic <laughs> wise. Yes, <laughs> and my yes. mom was like, nah, we ain't doing that. But yeah, so if you don't know Drumline, it is about a uh, drummer that came down from New York, got a scholarship to go to a HBCU to be a drummer. And he basically goes through the ins and outs of being a freshman drummer and has to be like hazed and really has to humble humble himself and it also stars zoe saldana and uh nick cannon is the drummer in this movie zoe saldana is like the go-to dance girl because I, I don't i don't know if i can say that because i've only <laughs> seen two movies where she was that but, but like in she the beginning has of her perfect, career yes. yes she has the perfect like if you want a black dancer like she looks like one because when she was in center stage, I believe that shit too, when she was a ballerina. She was great in center stage. But when I think about the majorette, or I don't know what these girls are called, uh, the dancers at HBCU in HBCU bands, I don't see her as that as that type. No, but she played the role okay. She, she was I think cute. She did she, and she was I a great love was, interest. Yeah, I think she did a great job. But yeah, I don't see her as the typical dancer for HBCU band. Okay, so this movie, I don't know if you could talk a little bit more about this because you you were in marching band, but like it focuses on the drum line, which is really just like this important part of marching bands. It's like what they, what they say was the heartbeat of the marching band. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how important like the drum line actually is, why it was so important for him to make the drum line, you know, I don't know much about like the competition that they entered. What was it, the BT Classics or something? Yeah. Um, but apparently like it's this big, they were competing in this big competition amongst HBCU marching bands. And if y'all don't know, HBCU marching bands are a really big deal. Like a really big fucking deal. And I, I don't know much about HBCUs, but I knew Drumline was a big deal because I understood the importance of HBCU marching bands. I'd seen them on like YouTube and shit. It's a lot of work. Like that yeah. high stepping is another thing. And they be dancing. And it's really hard to play in freaking in March. shapes and shit. They were forming yeah. entire, like, like when they were at the BT classics, they were forming like years while playing and staying in step. And it was organized. And I was like, get the fuck out of here. You got to be able to count your steps and know your notes. And like, mm -hmm. it's a lot of work to be in a marching band. I enjoyed being in marching band, but we were a classical marching band. We weren't doing all that <laughs> stuff. Mr. Strickland. 
even though we used to win some competitions and stuff, but we were rolling our feet. We were not high stepping anywhere. So. Well, that was the interesting thing about Drumline because Dr. Lee actually really loved like the classics. He remember when they were um, competing against, uh, I think it was Morris Brown. Mm-hmm. And they played like some like dope ass, like hype beat. And he was like, play March of the Bees or something. And he was like, yeah, <laughs> this is that shit. This is really going to get him. Yeah. Because it was technical. He was all about the technicality. Yes. He was a doctor for real. Yes. But HBCU marching bands are also about the showmanship. Yes. And then he didn't get that. And he was so stuck in the past. He was. because, And that was good because when they actually did like when Nick Cannon got his shit together, and he ended up working with like his, his, I don't know, his major, whoever it was, the guy leading the <laughs> drum line. But when he actually did start working with him, like the shit they ended up coming up with was like this blend of the past and the present. And it was a really great performance. And the interesting thing about this too, I think Nick Cannon actually did his own drumming while on screen. He had a double for the close-ups where they were like super technical, mm-hmm. but he actually did most of his own drumming. Which says a lot. And I actually yeah. used to want to be a drummer in middle school. Girl, I tried out. I was too nervous. I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. <laughs> the tryout came and I just started tapping that shit and making up beats on my own. And Miss <laughs> Wallace was just like, if you don't sit the fuck down somewhere, why not? Why can't I do it? And I, you know, it was terrible. Back to drumline. Oh, that freaking last scene though, where they were on the drums. I mean, this scene has become so iconic that mm-hmm. several bands do this. Like they always do this uh, drum cadence. And I wonder if this drum cadence was already well known before it was in the movie. That, uh, that and maybe my we question. didn't know. Yeah, like why is it so popular? I don't know if it was because it was so good beforehand or if the movie made the drum cadence so great. And if you didn't know, this actual movie was based off of a high school marching band, not even like a college marching band. Yeah, it's in Wiki. Oh, that's dope. (laughs) Shout out to Wiki, man. So yeah, I I actually didn't know that. And while we're talking about things I didn't know, (laughs) I actually know so little about HBCUs that I didn't know that the drumline or the school in drumline was not real i thought atlanta ant was a real one i thought nah, it was a real HBCU. it's not real just like how they you they never really have real fraternities or sororities yeah. in in movies just like stomp the yard those were all fake fraternities and sororities. they were they were yeah they were but i actually yeah i knew so little about hbcus that i was like yeah atlanta ant seems like a great school their colors look great and I was it sounds like, lit atlanta <laughs> ant it looked good <laughs> And I think Drumline incorporated a lot of like that HBC, even um, what's his name, ended up pledging like the band fraternity and stuff like that. So yeah, that's a perfect transition, I think, to Stomp the Yard, which, you know, I liked less than Drumline, but I still enjoyed to some degree. That was Columbus Short, right? In Stomp the Yard? Yep, yep. That was wild because he was out here crumping and shit. Yeah, he was he was crumping. <laughs> he was out here That's crumping. When crumping you remember when crumping was like girl. That was the thing to do. <laughs> so Stomp the Yard features Columbus Short, Chris Brown, supposedly, and <laughs> Megan Good. That's how they got us to the movie theaters. They, they showed that little ass clip of Chris Brown. He was in it for maybe five minutes. <laughs> That should be the name of the fucking episode is what happened to Chris Brown. So Columbus Short's character goes to HBCU after his brother uh Chris Brown is murdered. Yeah, he had to get out of his environment too. He was into some street shit. So now he's working on campus to pay off his tuition while he goes to this HBCU and he 
freaking becomes obsessed with Megan Good's character. He does become obsessed with her. Can we talk about <laughs> can we talk about how he was pursuing her in this movie? Like despite her having a whole man and trying to like articulate that. I'm not mad at it because her boyfriend was trash anyway. He and was she trash, to come to the realization. Like, but like, damn, bro, like, like lighten up. He was so serious about it too. He was just like, Yeah, but but how can I see you again? And like it was just like he was in her face, he was at her, he was following her places. I was just like, this is <laughs> a little trying to disturbing. love bomb her. <laughs> he was love bombing her. And it was just like, yo, she said she had a boyfriend. He's just like, Yeah, but fuck all that. What, <laughs> what does he gotta do with me though? Her boyfriend was a complete asshole though. A complete asshole. He's actually a very well-known choreographer. I believe it. I forgot his name. <laughs> yeah, he's been dancing in the industry for years. What is this man's name? Because I know it when i hear it oh you want to show neo before this nigga's name okay thank you okay <laughs> i forgot neo was in the movie me too I, and he was the roommate he was yes so he was the roommate dang neo be dancing his ass off darren henson is the choreographer uh that has been in the industry for so many years and was columbus shorts arch enemy in the film <laughs> he was his art arch nemesis so actually, I forget that there are so many great talent in this movie, like Blas Alonzo, Valerie Pettiford, who was the auntie <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> it's like really good Black talent that I totally forgot about. And I'd be forgetting that Neil be dancing his ass off. But I, I did forget he was in this movie for a little while. Um, you definitely forget Chris Brown is in it. Us telling you Chris Brown dies isn't even a spoiler because Chris Brown dies in like the first two minutes of the movie. Effects. It's literally the catalyst for, for pretty much the rest of it. It's a good movie. It definitely teaches me a little bit more about Black fraternities and sororities, at, especially at HBCUs, what that looks like. It's, again, we talked about Burning Sands a little bit. That's a little more controversial. This is more like the positive aspects of pledging and, you know, actually joining a Black fraternity sorority. And they're having like some brotherhood to it and sisterhoods and, you know, what the history of that looks like as far as networking opportunities and just creating opportunities in general for Black people. So mm -hmm. Stomp the Art is dope in that aspect, for sure. You may not know this, but most films that will have sororities and fraternities, Black ones specifically, mm -hmm. it's never the real fraternities and sororities. Never, you know, the AKAs, the Deltas, the Omegas, the Alphas. First of all, Black fraternities and sororities are very protective of mm -hmm. their brand, of their legacy, of, you know, how they initiate and recruit people. Like, these are things that aren't discussed um, to the regular everyday person. For sure. <laughs> and they don't talk about it. Yeah, they don't talk about it. So, so of course, they're not going to um, have their representation in movies and films. I, I thought that, you know, with the black and gold, like, they kind of reminded me of alphas. In a yeah, sense. like, that's what I'm saying. There's, short was pledging, there's the similarities. <laughs> or, like, it'll be the colors or it'll be the movements. Yes, exactly. Or it might be, like, the sign or the sounds that they make. Like, mm -hmm. there's definitely similarities, but they'll never blatantly say, like, these are AKAs. Exactly. <laughs> Like, no. The whole point that, you know, this movie's making as far as like the plot goes, Columbus Short is a street dancer. So he's out here crumping and all this extra shit doing him and Chris Brown out here hustling people for money and shit on the streets. So for him, a natural transition was to, again, you have this fraternity where they're very big on like the classics. They're very big on like, this is what stepping looks like. We're not here in a rap video, blah, blah, blah. So Columbus Short ends up bringing like some culture to their step team. Like he, mm -hmm. he pledges the HB, he pledges the fraternity he joins and then he brings 
like all this like like swag to it because they're out here doing steps and they keep losing to the other fraternity and they're just like why do we keep losing well because our steps are played that's why <laughs> so Columbus Stewart finds a way to incorporate street dancing into their step team so when they go to this big competition they actually have some swag and I thought that was really cool because I think I, I don't really know like what that looks like as far as like you know stepping and competitions and you know even seeing like like historically black fraternities and sororities on campus so it's really interesting to get like a peek into that and what that looked like and how important it was to them because mm -hmm. they was like serious about their shit they was practicing running miles and shit they was running up hills like fucking they were training to step and that shit was serious yeah man it's a sport but i really loved in stomp the yard how columbus shorts character really went through the history of the fraternity yes. and really like really made it a focus to understand what this fraternity is about because he was in he came on the scene very like but these fraternities, like, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like he didn't understand it. He wasn't trying to understand. So I'm glad he finally went through that process. He was of very really understanding like the importance of black fraternities and sororities because they really do give opportunities to these students and to these communities. I appreciate that they put that aspect in the movie. And this is a really interesting fact that I didn't know that you included that during um, the filming and the practices, they actually kept both of the fake fraternities apart from each other um, while they were like recording and stuff. So the actors never really saw each other so that they could develop a strong sense of competition against each other. Yeah. And you could kind of feel that like- <laughs> Yes, like they was really competing. When they got to like the final competition and they was going at each other, they was really competing. It was good though. Like it was a good, at least if there's anything I could say about Stomp the Art, it wasn't like anticlimactic. Like when it got yeah. to the competition, like they had really built up to it being an actual good ending. I enjoyed Stomp the Yard. Not as, again, not as much as I enjoyed Drumline, but I enjoyed Stomp the Yard because good plot, good character development, and it, it ended really well. So this was our breakdown of HBCU <laughs> movies and television shows. We hope we did the HBCU culture justice. We love anything like culture, but if you do know someone who has attended a Howard or a Morehouse or a Spelman or any of these HBCUs, please talk to them, get to know their experiences, find out, you know, why they made those choices and, you know, dig into some of that. That way you can have these conversations with your kids, or maybe you, it's just something you're, maybe you're a young person, you're just considering it yourself. It's important to, like Ariel said, like you have all your life to be around white people, <laughs> take the time to be around black people. And I'm sure you're getting like a different, a different dose of the culture on these HBCU campuses. So definitely if you have the opportunity, check them out. And on that note, Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you guys next week on Friday for another release. Love always.